Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on the payoff, Darren Prince has represented the likes of Magic Johnson, Dennis Rodman, Chevy Chase, Muhammad Ali, Pamela Anderson, Joe Frazier, the list goes on. But the real superheroes he talks about in his life are the ones that were there for him when he walked into a meeting in 2008 in New York City in early July. Uh, Darren was at the depths of addiction uh, after a long run of abusing drugs, uh, alcohol, uh, prescription drugs, you name it, he put it in his body. And he was functional for a while, if you want to call it that. But then the roof caved in, and boy, did it ever. He hit rock bottom, but now he's 15 years sober, and he carries the message. He understands what his role is on this earth. He shares that with us. And uh, carrying the message of sobriety uh, is something that this guy, he does a lot of stuff well, but boy, uh, it is next level. So I can't wait for you to hear Darren Prince. He's awesome. But first, my main man, Kevin Souza. Sometimes stuff goes wrong and you're freaking out because you feel like it's super important. But then you get a guy like Darren who's so chill and he's like, it's whatever, man. Well, that's what happened during this podcast. We lost the connection to the video. We switched over to audio, uh, which is the lion's share of our talk. And it's coming up right now. All right, so let me let's go all the way back. You grew up in Livingston, New Jersey. Yep. And it's a great place to grow up, suburb not too far from New York City. And mm-hmm. you managed somehow, well, you're gonna tell us how, but to create this a multi million dollar baseball card, basically a trading card company at the age of how old were you? Fourteen. You were fourteen. Now, something I could relate to that you said uh, in your story you've talked about. I was a kid early on where I, was, I, I had to go to the reading van. Um, I was ADD. Um, I was prescribed uh, like Ritalin as a kid. And I never realized until I got sober that that kind of had an effect on me. And you've shared that you kind of had similar circumstances play out in your life. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. Just back in the 80s, I'm older than you. There was no such thing as ADD or ADHD or Ritalin or Adderall. Um, but that could have also accelerated my drug addiction, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I think just being put in small classrooms and feeling different from my friends and other kids and being verbally teased, uh, you know, for, for being dumb and stupid. And, you know, you hear those words and when you absorb them into your core, into your soul, you have a belief system at that age, especially when you're not speaking up about it, where you're no good and you're different and, and, the lack of self-esteem and self-confidence and self-worth, um, you know, set in during those foundational years of my life. And no matter what level of success I attained, I always felt like that that dumb kid in the special ed rooms. 
Yeah, even 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 when you become this prominent, I know you don't like super agent the term, but so you become this prominent agent, uh, and everybody knows who you are, and you still. I love when you say, you know, you go home at night and you still have kind of lack that fulfillment and you don't really understand it until you get sober. You tell a great story. I mentioned your trading card situation, your baseball, um, your trading card company. You said that you went to a, a trading card show or whatever it was and you got You made a thousand bucks and you got home. And, show. Yeah. And, and that and that emptiness came back. Came right back. I was in the middle of the room, wheeling, dealing, hustling. Um you know, that mentality was instilled in me from my dad, uh, his business savviness. And I felt the feeling of self-worth. I felt the feeling of belonging. I was such a student uh, of the card industry in that 1980s baseball era that people were coming over to me for advice. And what do I think about this? And how many home runs is this guy going to hit? And I felt like I was right in the middle of where I needed to be. And it was euphoric without putting drugs into my system. And, uh, Went back home with this pile of money. I made more than most of my friends' <laughs> fathers were making in a single day. And I knew I was on to something. But the crash came probably later that night. I remember just sitting in my room and going through all the cards that I bought. And I had my own little inventory system, what I sold and what I traded for. And trying to figure out cost factor on the trade and how much I was going to profit when I sold those, you know, in a, in a short time. And... With math, I was a statistical genius, but then I just crashed. I just remember the euphoria just kept going down, down, down. And um, I didn't know how to get back up, which ultimately, you know, when drugs came into my life, that, that, that tell me, that's how I got up and kept me up there. Dude, those, those trade shows as a patron, right? Like, again, like I'm, I'm, I'm not much younger than you. And I go to those shows with my buddy. His dad was a Wall Street guy. And I know those guys used to kind of like lean on you and juice you for information. This guy is a super, super successful business guy. And he's, we're hopping in the car, living outside of Philly. And we're going to these trains, uh, trade shows all over the Northeast on weekends. And it was a rush just to be a kid there with no money, just to be around all the action. And, and you're right in the middle of this. How old are you? When, when you start to be able to be like, damn, I, I, I have, not only do I have something going, but I almost, I'm creating my own empire. I, I, you know, you say it and, and anytime somebody really understands that era, I get chills because the feeling is still there that we were literally rock stars. <laughs> we were celebrities. We were, I had Reggie Jackson buy his rookie card from me in 1989 at the Tropicana <laughs> uh, 501 club show. I mean, Keith Olbermann was a client. I mean, I, we were literally the most famous, you know, young ballers. Uh, you know, I know Gary Vee's a good friend. I saw him last week when I was with David Goggins at Dan Fleischman's, uh, 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 the, his mastermind event and um, the Limitless event. And, you know, it's just a feeling, man, that back then was unbelievable. 15, 16 years old. I was 19 post kind of hard not to get sucked into that because nobody really gave me a foundation for life and the most premium table locations at the national convention the best placement in sports collectors digest which was the bible uh that was like our wall street journal and um there was no internet back then you know everything was done either by fax machines or phone calls or flyers and the priority that i would get 
um, like I said, at the biggest and best trade shows, Alan, Mr. Mint Rosen was the godfather, but always one of my closest friends in the world that happened to pass a few weeks before my dad. He passed in January 2017. My dad was in February. And I, it was a feeling I, I cannot even tell you. And um, just to walk into a room and know that, you know, I'd be making ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars on a weekend, and the biggest ballers, lawyers, uh, corporate executive, Wall Street guys—they had to get FaceTime with Darren Prince because they knew I was going to find what they needed to find. Into Mantle, DiMaggio, Babe Ruth, and I, it was like obviously the holy grail of information too. When you start this, I mean, you, you talked about the fact that you're. I guess, 16, 17 years old when you're starting to really make big bucks. But you, your first experience with alcohol and drugs, that high, you talk about you were at sleepaway camp or, or summer camp. Work. Yeah, and, and, you, and, and you're 14 years old and you get a stomach ache, and then what happens? So I, my counselor took me to the infirmary to see a nurse name was Greta. I remember it like yesterday, and it was this clear cloth syrup cup with green liquid, and it tasted so horrible. But I remember... I always say it. I remember the feeling like yesterday. I'm walking back to the bunk across the softball field. And, and and that green liquid introduced me to the world. And I felt like Superman. And the minute I got back into the bunk, that green liquid introduced the world to Darren Prince. And I'm flying high. I'm confident. I'm just as smart, just as good looking, just as funny, just as, you know, intuitive I, I mean people were listening to me for the first time these guys in the bunk were laughing with me not at me uh, i was unstoppable with my confidence so i went to the bunk next to me never before did anything like this i'm flirting with like 20 girls and they're hysterically <laughs> laughing with me oh my god darren you're so funny and i remember the next day waking up thinking nothing of it and these girls are coming over to me like you were so funny last night you're so cute you're so and i'm like where, where did this even come from because it was a different person and that very next night, with no stomach pains, I healed over and I learned how to con and lie and manipulate and told the counselor the pain was excruciating again. And I did this for three straight weeks. And my mom and dad came up with visitation day and found that I was taking liquid Demerol. And the opiate crisis wasn't a, a big issue back then. And I found my first love, opiates. And a few months later, it happened with the dentist appointment. You know, I was one of the three. Same thing happened. So anybody listening can't blame the nurse because it would have happened anyway. And uh, I took extra strength Vicodin. So now it was in a pill form. And uh, after, you know, 24 hours, I went downstairs in the middle of the night. I saw there was only four pills left and started panicking. And when my parents woke up, I ran into the bedroom holding my cheek. I said, Mom, my tooth is killing me. I think I got a bad infection. We got to go to the dentist immediately. And she panicked as a loving mother that doesn't want to see her child suffer. And I conned him. And he wrote a prescription for another 12 pills. And I stayed home for three days. Fucked up beyond you could imagine. And just calling up every single one of my bros and girls and all right so i want to go back to the story you mentioned 14 years old right uh and and we and i lost you when you talked about the nurse i guess one in three and i'm guessing you would say would be ending up like addicts right and wouldn't respond to the demerol like you did well, well one, one in three regarding uh dentist appointments that are given prescription opiates they're now becoming addicts Oh, okay, okay. So one in three now that are beginning. Wow. And so back in the day, you went to see the dentist after this situation at camp with the Demerol, 
and you did it once again, right? With the you, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yep. what? What? How did you that? Know. How did that happen? Well, I mean, the the Demerol, obviously having no idea that it was an opiate, when I got my wisdom teeth removed, um, that that that's when it happened again. And you know, so I went from a liquid form to a pill form, and got the exact same sensation. And you know, to to get more, I basically went downstairs. You know. Uh, well, I went to my mom's bedroom first thing in the morning. I, you know, I knew I, at that point, I knew I had to manipulate and con and lie because I did it to the cam counter holding my cheek. And I said, Mom, you got to go back to the dentist. My tooth is killing me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a loving mom wants to see their child suffer, she had no clue what was going on in my brain. I didn't want to speak up. You're not going to tell me I can't get more of that. And uh, she took him back to the dentist and I got another dozen pills and, was as effed up as can be for the next three days, stayed home from school and, you know, called up everybody, had all these brilliant business ideas for my baseball car business. And I thought it made me smarter, wittier, uh, more personable. And I was off to the races at that point. You know, and alcohol and drugs can be the biggest, kind of the biggest mind fuck because now you, you have this vehicle where you're able to tap into this personality and you're also, you're being, you're successful, right? You, you, you take off. Uh, with the baseball cards and then what starts to happen like you you talk about the fact you go on the road with your buddies you're following the dead I mean you're hanging out with celebrities already before you become uh, this marketing magnet right and 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 representing athletes and celebrities what is that like for an addict making a lot of money that still doesn't even know that they're an addict they're just having fun at like 19 20 years old I mean, I, I was in this industry at that point where these celebrities and athletes, these icons would show up. And long before I ever worked with Muhammad Ali, I even met him uh, in the hotel lobby at 8 in the morning, leaving Arlington, Texas, uh, when I was probably 19 or 20. And he was doing magic tricks and levitating and taking pictures with me and a, a buddy of mine back then. So I'm around, like, the biggest stars in the world, high as fuck, not even understanding what's going on here, thinking, you know, they're loving me because they're seeing the side to me, this personable side. I'm respectful. I'm not in their face. And, you know, making at that point probably four or $500,000 a year selling cars. I had a whole team of people working for me. And I'm literally my own rock star within the industry, getting press, national press nonstop. Front cover of the USA Today when you're how old? 1989, my freshman year in college. Yep. Mel Antonin did a story. So Reggie Jackson bought his rookie card for me at the Tropicana 501 Club show. And that's a crazy story because that that that, uh, that was a massive hit for me. My sister was going to University of Maryland at the time. And Cal Ripken's brother, Billy Ripken, nobody knew him. But I wound up go, uh, planning a trip to go. I just told my office the story the other day. I wound up planning a trip to go see my sister the next week. And always that hustler mentality. I wound up buying 100 Baltimore Orioles team sets for like five bucks and it had the Billy Ripken the fuck uh, face? rookie card in it and knowing nothing about that card until the USA Today story came out, I was going to flip them for probably $15, $20 a set to one of the card stores because not everybody can make it to that huge convention and make myself a grand 1500 And my plan was I'd buy all the ecstasy I needed for my friends to come back to New Jersey and have fun partying for the next few weeks on Darren's dime. <laughs> and I found that on that Monday morning that that's one of the most iconic cards in the hobby where the word fuckface was written on the bottom of the card. And Billy 
who was the jokester from the team, the bat boy gave him that bat, and Billy didn't realize he was holding that card. I was, I was banging out those cards, bro, anywhere between 500 and $1,000 a piece. I cut off school on that Monday morning, flew home, uh, ran, ran ran to my dad's, my parents' garage. My dad was fuming that I wasn't in school, and as I was shaking and yelling what I was looking for, it was like I struck gold. I probably made a couple hundred thousand dollars um, within that week because that card turned out to be like the lottery ticket for me out of a hundred of them. And that's sort of, I mean, you already were on the road to success, but then things like that start to break for you, right? Like, like kind of like, you, you know, it's like you were prepared for the opportunity the moment stuff like that happens and you already had the plan in mind about how you were going to sell these sets regardless. Um, you mentioned something about going to Maryland and partying. I've heard you talk about the fact that, you know, you had an opportunity. By the time I was doing drugs, you know, ecstasy was shit. I mean, you didn't know what you were getting. Uh, I graduated college yeah, we in had, 19... We had, we, had the, we had the best in the world, man, the MDMA <laughs> era. It was, it was Maryland and Texas in, in 1986-87 bought in you know, it's the best in the world. It's funny when we're at meetings. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, yeah, when, I, when I was in meetings back in New Jersey talking about it, a lot of the old timers had no clue what it was, and they asked me to explain it. And I could, the easiest way to explain it is you would take a pill, and within 30 minutes, you could be out with people that you, you, you enjoyed partying with and have the greatest night of your life. Or you could stay in with no TV on, maybe listen to music by yourself and have the greatest night of your life. It was a full-body orgasm for six to seven hours. And you're on this train, and so are your buddies, because you have this disposable income, mountains of it, and you guys are going, talk a little bit about your experience following the dead. That's one of those things where I found that out about you, and I thought that was pretty cool. It's unique, and it's a nice wrinkle into kind of who you are. Uh, there was nothing better, man. I mean, I would buy the tickets. I would, um, you know, take, you know, six, seven, eight people with me, guy friends, girlfriends. The drugs were on Darren. The tickets were on Darren. Um, we would, you know, when they hit Madison Square Garden and it was a five, six night run every night. I mean, you know, I had everything already on lockdown. And then we, I mean, I traveled to Buffalo to see him. I saw him at RFK. Um, I was a late bloomer in the dead world, to be honest with you. Probably. The buzz probably hit me, I would say, probably around 94 after Brent so Midland passed away. So, so you did get to see Jerry? I got to see Jerry for a couple of years, um, but I missed the Brent Midland era. And then Vince Welnick, who sadly passed away, was the keyboardist. And, uh, I mean, my God, but I still have so much of my in my um, my iPhone on the dead. But, you know, I learned about, you know, DATs and I was the only one that could afford a DAT recorder. I actually had one of my souped-up sports cars, so I would actually listen to live shows. And what I did, the art of negotiating manipulation that I had from using drugs, I would make my way over every time to the taper section, and I would give, uh, you know, one of the, one of the producers, um, you know, drugs or money just to plug me in with my DAT player, and I would have actually masters, which I still have. Uh, back in New Jersey, of all the sickest show from Shoreline Amphitheater, Berkshire, uh, uh, I, I mean, you name it, I, I, I had it. And, and I was able to plug in and just, then I would take those DATs and I had a souped up Mitsubishi 3000 GT in 90, 91 that John Hennessy, who's now a legend in the game, 
Um, I know Michael Jordan just did something with him. He was just starting out back then. Yeah. And I had him soup up my Mitsubishi 3000 GT with more horsepower. I shipped the truck to him on a flatbed. And any anything I had to do to get more and more notoriety, get more and more instant gratification, um, I did it because I had the resources to do so. And now as you're on the ascent, right, and you, you make a decision because you run into trouble with the law, um, it's like a mail fraud thing and it's, it comes, it's, yeah. it's something that you didn't really naturally didn't intend to do, but it happened to you. And you're kind of like, Hey, what the hell you find yourself in financial trouble and your father gives you this great advice. Uh, and it still shows, you know, you, you, you weren't even close to your bottom at this point. You're, you're now what I would call a functional addict, right? I mean, if that's a hundred percent. Yeah. And so what does your dad say to you when you're sitting, you're on that fishing trip, uh, with your la- basically your last fifty grand, you say you and your dad who is oh such no, but was he even that? So yeah. what happened was when I got out of the car business, the coolness of being around athletes and celebrities and booking autograph signings for them. I started my own memorabilia company. I would broker signings for Ali, Frazier, Rodman, Magic. Um, so now I'm like feeling extra cool because you know I'm making them a ton of money, booking autograph appearances, private signings at my own company. But the one guy that um, I thought was legit. I was, I was authenticated by forensic document experts. I think it's a very famous case. I think it's called Operation Foul Ball. It was Michael Jordan. And um, I get called one day. Literally that weekend I spent with Muhammad Ali and Lonnie at the Essex House Hotel a week after he lit the torch for the Olympics in Atlanta. And I get back to my condo and I, I have a voicemail message from the FBI in Chicago. Now, Mind you, I'm writing for the number one column in America and Tough Stuff magazine on the national news. Tough stand. Stuff, I'm yeah. Paid, and I'm getting paid for it. It was called the autograph experience. People, the fan mail was ridiculous that I would get mail to me because there was no email, really. It was like in its infantry stage. And I would write about Larry Bird, Muhammad Ali, Magic, everybody's experience doing private autograph signings with them on the personal level. And fans around the country were going nuts over it. So... I'm thinking I'm the king of the world. They want me to come out there. And the next morning, um, I get a call back, and the FBI agent asked if I had an attorney. And that's when I was like, all right, that's a little bit weird. He said yesterday they were going to pay me for my time. I, I didn't even know why I'm going. So I called my lawyer. He called me up and said, you got to bring me. I don't know what's going on, but something ain't right. Where'd you get this stuff from? So I called my source, and he's like, look, you did nothing wrong. You paid me by check. These assholes are trying to get me on tax evasion. I developed a really great rapport with this guy over a couple of years. I trusted him. And little did I know in the middle of the interview process with the FBI, with my attorney there, you know, I told, I don't know if it was a lie. I don't know if I was not in tune to it, but they asked if there was ever any customers that complained about the Michael Jordan autographs. And I said, no, never. I'm like, it was authenticated by one of your very own, a renowned forensic document expert that's retired for the FBI. And, we took a lunch break and I came back. Apparently they had my phone line tapped for three months. And one of my employees was on the phone with a lawyer from Hawaii disputing the fact that you bought the stuff a year ago. How do we know it's still the original uh. stuff we sold? Nobody's ever said it's fake. That's ridiculous. And so once they did a, a year long investigation, as I was bleeding money and doing everything I can to keep my reputation intact, offering refunds to everybody, um, they eventually charged me with making a false statement to the FBI. So I, I think to this day I have a felony record, but it also showed me the love and the respect my clients from the autograph 
signing had for me because Magic and his longtime rep at the time, Lon Rosen, yeah. Rod and Muhammad, Muhammad and Lonnie all wrote letters to the judges. And, you know, so I was now at a point where I'm like beaten down financially. My reputation took a massive hit. I knew in my heart I didn't do anything wrong, but I also knew in hindsight the way everything went down from my lawyers were telling me and, you know, the judge at the time of the sentencing, I probably should have known, but I was so caught up in, you know, the, the, the life that I had that I should have seen at a certain point that something might have been wrong. And they charged me with making a false statement. My dad, uh, you know, did everything he can to help me. I was borrowing money from friends just to keep keep afloat. And I surprised him with a fly fishing trip to Alaska with the last three grand to my name. And he was an old school Jewish guy. Didn't want me spending money. Back then, you'd get the tickets in the mail. So yeah. we, we were done. We were going no matter what. And I'm so glad I did because that trip indirectly created Prince Marketing Group. We're out in this gorgeous stream with a tour guide fly fishing and he asked me what my next move was and I said I want to be an agent that I really thought about it I don't want to go back into an industry where everybody put me on top and now that I'm on the bottom they're kicking me uh, I'm, I'm never going to win and it's not even worth the energy to rebuild myself but I don't have eight years to go to law school and I remember like it just happened he dropped his fishing pole in the middle of this gorgeous stream and said law school you don't need to go to law school. Darren, life is about who you know, not what you know. Look, look at some of the most iconic figures in the world that are friends of yours. You have relationships with them. If I were you, I would start with magic, tell them your vision, and he supported you, and see where it goes. And it was a few weeks later, I was in Michigan with Irvin, and um, we were staying in the same hotel. I had a, as usual, just you know, let him know when to be ready, so I knock on his hotel suite door uh, 20 minutes before the car service came, and to this day, he hasn't changed one bit. He always wants to talk about life more than business and told me to come to his suite a few minutes early. And this and is a, a car signing? Because he said to me the same thing my dad said. Uh, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you think you're going to, you know, stay in that industry? And I had a choice to, you know, kind of go for it or, uh, you know, not say anything. It was that pivotal moment and my palms were sweating and I told him my vision and, uh, he said to me that he loved me and he knew about making mistakes because he was a few years removed from his HIV announcement and said to me, you have a good entertainment lawyer. I'm like, no, but I can find one. He goes, okay, I'm going to give you two years to represent me, but if you don't use me to knock down every door to bring in all the celebrities he can, I'm going to fire you before the term is up because life isn't how successful I become, Darren. It's how successful I make you and everybody else around me because then you're going to pay it forward to everyone else. It's a domino effect. And I couldn't believe it. I, you know, hired a publicist. I did everything I had to do. And within a few weeks, I'm in New York Post, page six, super agent Darren Prince, Lance Magic Johnson as a client. And dad gave me another lesson. So I'm run over to the house to show him page six, the biggest gossip yeah. page in the world. It, it, was, it was TMZ before TMZ. And I got real credibility. And my dad goes, sit down. I said, okay. He goes, look at me. Let me explain something to you. You haven't done shit in the business yet. They're calling you a super agent, not because you're anybody special. It's because magic is special. And remember that. And you've talked about that. You've, you, 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 you're very quick to say the clients are the ones that are the marquee talents. And that's why you say, hey, I'm not a super agent. I'm a, maybe I'm a prominent agent. 
but you you know, and that's kind of program stuff in you. I I, I hear coming out the humility, but all this well, is well, it's, it, it's an issue too because I actually have a super agent tattoo on my leg. <laughs> oh, really? That I got done within a year, and it's a constant reminder every day of how far I've come, and that <laughs> ego needs that yeah. ego needs to be that ego needs to be crushed every single day in recovery, dude. And and that's why and you talk about it. You're still so active, and I want to get to your recovery, but I want to wrap up kind of. You're using history. You know, you had been at this, dude, for like 25 years by the time you got sober. But you're doing, you know, you talk about the MDMA. You talk about, you know, you're, you're taking Percocets when you can. You do Coke when you when you can. I mean, you mentioned you go in long stretches doing all this stuff. But when you sign with Magic, there's a morality clause. And that morality clause, explain that a little bit. Shed some light on that with people. The morality clause is basically, you know, your public behavior and, you know, any sort of, you know, potential arrest and damaging their brands would obviously mean legal ramification, immediate termination. So I kind of said to myself, wait a minute. I'm like, I still think I got a way where I can drink, have a good time. But all I really need are Oxycontin, Percocets, and Vicodins for my sciatica and my anxiety and the doctors will give me anything I need. They know who I work with. I'm bringing smoking Joe Frazier to my local doctor's office. I'm getting <laughs> him on the phone with Hulk Hogan to say, what's up. I'm bringing them signed jerseys from magic and Larry bird. I mean, these guys know I'm on top of the world and, and everybody ate it up. And I mean, I did have some real sciatica and, you know, I would do, obviously do my MRIs and everything, but I had an unlimited supply of oxys, Vicodins and Percocets. And, you know, for years it worked. Until it didn't. I, I remember the specific event where I was at in Dallas with Smoking Joe for a corporate event. And I literally snorted a couple oxys before I knocked on his door to make sure he was ready. And my superpowers were gone. I'm literally in the middle of this event with hundreds of people, everyone coming over to us. And I couldn't get that feeling for the life of me. And I don't know what happened. And well, it's once at that point, living to use, I turned out started to using to live did anybody that's so you were living to use and then you were using to live i totally can relate did, did anybody ever tell you any of those guys like magic or smoking joe even though you know you weren't sticking a needle in your arm or or doing you know street cocaine you're still fucked up did anybody ever call you on it or, or, or notice it or was it just had, hey that's darren the, the, joe didn't understand the magnitude of it but urban did Matt magic i call him by his real name yeah, and sure. hulk uh, Hulk did, and I had an experience that I wrote about in my book. Rodman was on, uh, I believe it was Celebrity Big Brother, and when he got evicted, uh, one of his reps was able to fly to London and bring him back, and we had a long night at Stringfellas, and ironically, the strip uh, club. he had to wake me up in the morning and bang on the door, and we get on the plane, and I can't even see straight because I'm in such a stupor, and Muhammad Ali and are on the plate with us, and Dennis just wanted to get sleep, and all he sees is me opening up the pill bottle, and he's like, bro, you got to stop at that shit, man, because it's out of control. You're taking them every day. And I'm like, I don't even want to hear it. I'm like, I need to sleep. I, I didn't get a good night's sleep, and my back is killing me. And that goes on for, I mean, like I said, about 20 years, and you talked about some of the issues you have because even when you're super successful, you're still kind of out of it. So like you're having tax problems, you got a shitload of money coming in, but you're just not right. Life is unmanageable. Forget about the emotions and the physical taxes. This is taken on you, but then we have legit legitimate taxes that we're behind on. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 it was it was that, but it was also um, I've got my business managers and accounts telling me what to do with the money. I'm like, yeah, 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 because all I'm doing is looking at the instant gratification of hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in the bank account and, and crazy cash flow, and I'm not really paying attention to anything because I'm just so focused again on the instant gratification of the rush of the deals and. Yeah, we have all this money coming and I mean the tax thing eventually wasn't a problem once, you know, they kind of just took control of, you know, paying whatever the liabilities were. But the opportunities that I missed out on as far as like investing and scaling and growing and I mean, we we would consistently have months where hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees were being made and I didn't care as long as I was you know, living my life as long as on the outside, I, I was portraying that super agent life as long as I had the most beautiful girlfriend or woman on my arm. That's all that mattered to me. As long as I kept looking back at those that doubted me and said, look at me and look at you. Uh, I'm at the you know biggest championship fight sitting ringside with Smoke and Joe. I'm on, you know, private jets. I'm at the Super Bowls. I'm at the biggest award shows, the red carpets with, you know, the kings of the world. I mean, the kings of all kings. And that that's all that mattered to me. So one of the when it starts to really go bad, you're still having great success at the All Star Weekend in Philadelphia. You you get basically like a like a summit, right? Like with Ali and Joe Frazier, which had never happened before on this type of level, right? This type of engagement. But you're sitting there, you make this happen, and you're fucked up the whole time. I literally just told the story this morning to a friend of mine at the Lakers. Um, <laughs> I, uh, Sunday was the anniversary of Thriller Manila. So when I post the pictures, it's always bittersweet. Um, the night before, we had multiple opportunities. Harlem Runners, a dear friend of mine and mentor, was Ollie's longtime agent and brought me into the Ollie camp for several years and kept pushing me to develop a relationship with Joe in the mid 90s, saying that there's going to be an opportunity when Joe wanted to start booking him for signings and just cultivate a relationship. And Joe eventually became a second father figure. So I, I understood both sides. I understand that Joe took too much to heart, but I also understood that Ali pushed too much because the whole Uncle Tom thing created a lot of issues for Joe's kids. Let, let me stop. Let me let me stop you there because you're not only you had these great relationships with these two, but you also are a sports guy. Was was it just theater to Muhammad Ali? Was he just like this is how you hype a fight up, or or was it personal? when he was taking those shots at, at Joe Frazier, the Uncle Tom stuff. like what, what? To, to, to Ali, it was marketing, but he didn't respect the fact that Joe wasn't as quick as he was um, to kind of come back. He felt like Joe never had his intellect that he had to kind of engage back. And, you know, so when he would take those personal insults about Joe being dumb and ugly, like, you know, Joe took that to heart, you know? And I was with Joe in 96 when, when Ali – Lit a, uh, the flame. I, I was representing him and Ali lit the torch in, in Atlanta and Joe was out there with Marvis and Marvis called me up and said, we got a big problem. Pop is just stopped by a major media outlet print and uh, he's kind of laughing, but I could tell it was a nervous laugh and said, when they asked about Ali representing the world, lighting a torch, what do you think? And Joe goes, it's an embarrassment. We put him up there shaking like that, oh. that I would have pushed, pushed him in the goddamn flame. <laughs> and, and you know that that set us back for years. And that's where I mean, we were in 1996. But in 2002, you somehow get this thing together. I got it together. My father, may he rest in peace, worked it. Uh, my dear friend Nikki C. Nick, Nick Rodasco, 
who's one of my agents and business partners and best friends, we all did whatever we had to do on the side. And what happened was Joe and I were in LA and uh, I think it was about late 2001, straight up business deal. I said to him, like, you know what, I could champ. Why don't we go to Harlan's office? Let's go see him. Uh, I, I was like, you know, I, I want him to feel your energy. I want him to see that it's just different. Now. And Harlan, Ali, that was Muhammad yeah. Ali's agent, right? Or exactly. Okay. So we paid for Harlan a surprise visit. And Harlan saw a side to Joe he never saw before. And Joe got teary-eyed. And he's like, look, man, you know, we got to end this. If we could show the world that we can do it and make peace, maybe it could help the rest of the world that's killing each other. And Harlan just could not believe it and said, you know what, Joe? I'm going to speak to Lonnie and Muhammad, and I'm going to tell them we need to get this done. This needs to happen. And they wanted Joe to come out for the Ollie Mover premiere with Will Smith, and Joe didn't want to do that. He wanted to more or less do it. That happened earlier before we went to Harlan's office, so that was a mess. I was annoyed at Joe uh, for not wanting to be in the limo with Ollie and Will and walk the red carpet and get his just due. But I understood it. It was deeper. He wanted to do it on his home turf, like you said, in Philly. He felt safer. And the opportunity came a few months later in 2002. I'm out there doing a corporate event with Joe. We were going to the game anyway, and I get a call from Damon Bingham and Lonnie. Damon is Howard was Howard Bingham's son, the famed photographer, Ollie's sure. best friend. Sadly, since Damon and Howard are both gone, and Lonnie and Damon said, we'd love for you, Joe and Marvis, to come to our suite tonight and have dinner with Muhammad and all of us. And I couldn't believe it. It was bittersweet. Harlan was in... Um, Las Vegas at a conference, he couldn't make it, and he goes, Darren, this is historic, you gotta do it, don't worry about me, we'll, we'll find another time for them to get together, and ner- nervous as I've ever been, I said to Joe about the call we got, and without hesitation, goes, you know what, he would call me boss man, you know what, boss man, let's go see the butterfly tonight, huh. and that's what he called Muhammad, the butterfly, and uh, what I did, you know, let's get back to the drug talk, 30 minutes before I went to get Joe and, and go to Ollie's suite was I didn't feel worthy because that kid in the small classrooms, that kid in the back of the room, that kid that was made fun of is now with two of the most regal icons in pop culture history about to go for this historic dinner that any president or world leader would have been a part of. And my best thinking had me chop up two Percocets and two Vicodins and mix it and snort them. <laughs> because I didn't feel worthy for one second in a room that these men loved and respected Darren Prince more than he ever loved and respected himself. And as you continue to climb these and, and you soar to these incredible heights, you mentioned about that. Like we're still, as addicts, still like the hole in the donut, right? Like you're putting all this. I mean, I can't imagine. A hole in my soul. Yeah. and I, But as a little kid, I look at your life on paper and I'm like, that's if I could. Okay, sign me up, dude. Like, I, and and if you need to take me off the earth by the time I'm forty, I'll. Go, uh, that's cool because this is what I want out of life. But you're getting all this incredible stuff, and you're still empty. And it leads to you. You finally overdose, I guess, in the mid two thousands, right? I think two thousand seven in Vegas. In Las Vegas, it was around two thousand six. Okay, was it All Star Weekend out there, or were you just out there partying? All Star Weekend, NBA All Star Weekend. I was out there with. Rodman, Steve from my office. We had a big TV show deal with Mark Cuban for HDNet called Geek to Freak. And we had a celebration launch event. I think it was at the uh, Gentleman's Club Scores. And I had a horrible case of bronchitis. And my uh, my then wife, uh, I told her the doctor was coming to the room. And I went to get a prescription bottle of Tussinex, which was an opiate-based cloth syrup. And 
I actually loved when I got bronchitis because of an excuse to get a couple bottles and lie to the doctor and tell him, hey, I accidentally spilled one. Can you call in another one for me? And I, I went to the pharmacy to get it and told her to get me a couple of vodka, Red Bull, and cranberries. I'm getting ready to go out and uh, got back to the room, chopped up a few Vicodins because he gave me a prescription for like 50 of them for you know, the, the pain in my throat because I had a throat infection too and finished half the cough syrup, two of the drinks. And within five minutes, man, I'm on the ground shaking, um, you know, foaming at the mouth. My my eyes are completely dilated. I could barely see my heart's racing out of my chest. And some of my then wife called the paramedics to the room and they, they, they literally basically break down the door and I've got needles in my arm, oxygen mask in my face, EKG machines. They're doing everything to revive me as I'm like looking up at the sky saying, God, don't take me. I don't know what I did. I'll never do it again. And never made it out that night. But what I'm, I do remember waking up at three in the morning, going to the bathroom, looking at myself. And I look back at pictures of me then. I look like I was 60. Now I look 20 years younger. And uh, I said to myself, uh, what the heck is wrong with you? And, and you know, who does this? Like you've got all this great stuff going on. And why would you do this to yourself? And, with that, I finished half the bottle of cough syrup, and I chopped up another three for a bike, and I snorted them, and I went back to bed because, to me, it was the vodka, Red Bull, and cranberry that caused the reaction. And they say the definition of an insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, and that was it in that moment. But I, I had a moment of clarity when I got back to New Jersey that week. I called an addiction psychiatrist. He told me I was an opiate addict. Put me on Suboxone. I lived this way for over a year. I lied to him. I was snorting Ambien at night before I went to bed. I was on a mood stabilizer, anxiety pills, still drinking a couple days a week. And uh, finally, my, my real God moment happened on July 1st, 2008, in the form of my uncle, who had since passed, and his then girlfriend, Andrea. They came to visit my mom in New Jersey. They paid me a surprise visit. I never met this woman before, and I was so beaten. I was so sick and tired. We were talking about me going over rehab, but I was too busy. Then I was going to go to a spa that next week and fully detox and yeah. get my life in order. And she just looked at me, this woman, Andrea. I never met her before, man. And, you know, I, she asked if everything was okay. I opened up to her. I felt dialed in. I felt something from her. I never felt from another person. And she told me, do I know I'm an addict that my life's unmanageable? And I said, yeah. She's like, you realize you're powerless. I said, 100%. And she starts pointing to all the incredible photos on my wall with some of the biggest stars. And it's like, do you realize this doesn't mean anything because you don't mean anything to yourself? And I broke down and started crying. And she goes, it's okay. I can help you. And she pulls out a five-year sober coin that she just got the week before a meeting and said, I'm in the fellowship of recovered addicts and alcoholics and I can help you. And she goes, are you willing to do the work? I said, anything. I'll do whatever I got to do. And she put me on a detox plan, and 24 hours later, it was July 2nd, 2008. I was living in New York with my then wife and came back from the gym and all the withdrawal pains and the nauseousness and upset stomach. I called them up. I said, I can't do it. It's been 24 hours. I'm calling the doctor to get what I really need to get. And uh, I'm yelling at them on the phone. My uncle said, it's the goddamn disease talking. You've been living this freaking way for 25 fucking years of your life. It's time to be accountable. Get yourself to a 12-step meeting and tell these people you're sick and suffering. I said, there's no way I've been to this stupid meeting because people don't understand me. And I hung up the phone and ran into the bathroom to find some narcotic anxiety pills. She told me I could take for the craving and all the cravings. And 
in one of the medicine bottles that I opened, there were three extra cent Vicodin, which wow. we knew we cleaned out every medicine captain. So I didn't even know how we missed these. And for that split second, it seemed like a gift from God. But it was about 10, 15 seconds later, I fell to my knees and I finally had to get the desperation. I screamed out to God, I can't do this anymore. Take the money, take the notoriety, take the business. I need a single day of freedom. If you take me out of hell, I will spend one day at a time, take another day out with me. And I truly had a white light moment because it was like a lightning bolt and my right shoulder across fire and I heard a voice as loud and clear as it could be. Say, I've got you and you're ready. And I stood up and I flushed the pills and it was like I was on autopilot. I went right over the computer. I found a 12-step meeting and I went downstairs to grab a cab because there was no Uber in 2008. And this absolutely gorgeous night in New York City, July 2nd, 2008, up the window rolled down. And I'm looking up at the sky and said, what the heck just happened? For the first time in my life, I wanted to stay sober when I wanted to get high. And I walked into this church basement that probably had upwards of 200 recovered addicts and alcoholics who were all once in a hopeless state of mind. And the leader said, is anybody new or coming back? And uh, man, my hand went up, ego crushed. And I said, I'm Darren, I'm an addict. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a substance abuser. I, I, I need help. I'm suicidal. I've got a great life outside these rooms. And uh, I'm here to surrender. And um, about a dozen of them came over and, and you know, they changed my life. They they hugged me. They patted me on the back. They said, stick with the winners. They told me things like, the fellowship isn't for those who want it. It's not for those who need it. It's for those who do it. Um, they taught me about the five A's, attitude adjustment, accountability, acceptance, and action. And then they told me something that saved my life forever. And they said, we're going to love you before you ever know how to love yourself. And that room, on July 2nd, 2008, for the first time in my life, I felt a connection. I felt a part of. It wasn't Ollie. It wasn't Frazier. It wasn't Magic. It wasn't Hulk. It wasn't Ric Flair. It wasn't Rob and Pam Liners and Chevy Chase. These people showed me a bridge back to life for the first time in my life. That is, they're the superheroes, right? And compared to these people that you were mixing with for so long. How does someone, I mean, I guess you kind of answered it, but I'm, I'm curious about this. Somebody who, you know, you're a master, you're a master manipulator, but you're also a good dude who was obviously good at relationships, right? You were sick, um, but you had all this stuff. How do you crush that ego to go in there and just say, I'm done? Like, is it, is it the absolute sickness that leads to the gift of desperation? Is it that white light moment? Like people that don't know what the fuck to do, and they haven't gotten to that moment yet, you know, that where, the, where you knew you had that moment. Uh, you know, what do you say to those people? Like, if somebody like you can get humble. Yeah, I mean, top of the world. I don't care if you're worth billions of dollars in a corporation. You ain't Darren Prince and living my life. You have to pay to have my life. You have to pay for those experiences and those relationships. Yeah. A lot of money. And I'm living it every freaking day. So, that's really my me message now for the high bottoms because, you know, I just knew I was given the gift of desperation and I was humbled. And I knew that I had to keep that ego in check. My, my morning started yesterday with a 30 minute call from Hulk Hogan about life. And, you know, over the weekend, I caught up with Magic and Charlie Sheen and I spoke. 
yesterday for an hour about stuff we have coming up. And Jerry West came by to hang out for a half hour. I mean, I'm still around the most cultural, iconic figures of all time, but they're my friends, you know, first and foremost. Anybody can make them money. They all ask how I'm doing. They all admire what I've done in the world's recovery. Jeannie Buss, Mark Cuban, give testimonies for my book, Aiming High by the Grace of God. It became a bestseller, Magic to the Forward on it. Because this is life and death. I'm going to have a big foundation event for my 501c3 Aiming High Foundation. I want to do Grumman Spots in Miami at Komodo on November 30th in Ric Flair. So to be happy to fly in and support it. I mean, they know that this is everything to me. And, and I've finally developed for the first time in my life self-worth by doing esteemable acts. Yes. And I spoke to 3,500 people in Orlando and worked my ass off to become a keynote speaker and got a standing ovation and raised a lot of friggin' money. I don't do it for keynote fees. I do it for my foundation, and it's going to help me get about a dozen people into treatment uh, that are suffering from mental health and substance abuse and alcoholism because that's what gives me joy out of life right now. I, I found my purpose in life on this journey. And God always had a plan that it was never about the so-called super agent life. He put me in a position knowing that at a certain point I was going to ask for the blessing. And like Hulk Hogan said, God said, now that you've come to me correct, it's time for you to be a blessing to other people. So my ego is long gone. No matter how much money I'm making, in February, we, 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 we started working with Tom Brady for the 10X Grant Cardone Conference. And, you know, just having that experience with him years ago, that would have been like, look at me, look at me. No, he's Tom Brady, the guy that's accomplished extraordinary things off uh, on the field and off the field. But he, he wanted to hear about my relationships with my clients. And I always find an opening, no matter who it is, to get into my personal journey. Because it's, it's one day at a time hands down the most proudest achievement of my life. And I've said it many of times. I've said it on, I think, Jay Shetty's podcast and Omar the Rockstar. I've been on the top media outlets from Fox and Friends, Chris Cuomo, uh, you know, Good Day New York, um, you know, Dr. Oz. That to me, when I'm long gone, I, the age in life means nothing to me. I want on my tombstone a man that went deep into hell and came out on the other side and sprinkled hope and recovery across the world to help those that are sick and suffering. That's my legacy. And nobody can take that. That will last so much longer than any of these incredible stories because there are literally walking miracles that you're impacting by, by getting people to treatment. A couple more things and I'll let you get out of here because it's unbelievable how you're willing to do this with somebody like me and help carry the message. When you, because a lot well, of people... All we need is one listener, man. Yeah. It's God's work. I, I don't care if it's the biggest podcast in the world or talk show or whatever. I don't, I don't, when somebody asks me, you don't say no in the world of recovery. Yeah, well, and, and I so appreciate that. And it, it makes you so relatable. Um, and, and you're somebody who maybe you would look at on paper and say, maybe this person shouldn't be that relatable. Was it a situation for you? I know for me it was big with women. Like, if I stop taking these drugs and stop drinking, how am I going to ever have sex again? Like, that was some of the stuff that kept me from getting sober. For you, you have these incredible relationships 
that have taken you to a whole nother level with these people who, let's face it, they're very intimidating, regardless of whether they mean to be or not. They are. They're larger than life. Were you worried about that at all? How am I going to continue to do that? Because that, that'll keep people drunk and high, right? How am I going to do it, my it, job? It, it, took a little bit, it took a little bit to get comfortable with my own skin. As far as relationships, I'm still trying to figure that out. I you know, got divorced in recovery. I had a broken engagement in recovery. I'm still super close to my ex-fiance Priscilla. Just had a relationship end last week with my girlfriend that we were together for three years. Um, but she was younger yeah. and uh, 23, you know, beautiful girl that, um, you know, I was 27 years older. And, and so I'm still a work in progress, man. I've got my spiritual healer and guru and, and uh, manifestation coach. That's incredible. My boy, Lingerie. And uh, we're trying to like, target in because anybody that tells you they're healed like David Goggins is my guy we were together at the Limitless Rise Con a couple of weeks ago and talking in his green room alone anybody that tells you they're fucking healed is full of shit healing is a continuous lifelong journey character defects or something whether you struggle with drugs or alcohol or not we all have them and we gotta get to the root of our decision making and choices that we still make and whether it's trauma response from childhood or teenage years, every single one of us are grown kids that are either running from or running through situations that have happened to us in our life. And just because I'm that spiritual guru, it doesn't mean I still make the best choices for Darren. And yeah. I'm still a work in progress with that. But, you know, as far as the celebrities, now I'm as comfortable as I've ever been, but I'm still trying to figure out the relationship part, because, you know, there is a, a bit of trauma looking back at teenage years and not being accepted and why I've picked certain situations to be in. Um, any one of my ex-girlfriends will tell you they all have the best relationships in the world with me um, because they know I'm a good person. Um, but the way I've gone into relationships, uh, because, hey, I only got 16 years sober, man. They talk, talk to us about recovery you stun your growth and you only really yeah. pick up a year from the time that you started using so in reality i'm probably an emotional 28 year old in, in, in relationships and um i want to work on that i want to i want to pick better i want to be better in relationships i i don't always want to have to be a savior in relationships which i'm such a savior in the world of recovery sometimes i look for that i you know i i, I want to help everybody and um you know, I can't always be that way. So right now it's about Darren taking time to Darren. Darren needs to understand instant gratification always isn't about woman or, 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 or eating bad with triggers that you hear, you hear about that or, or, or gambling and all the triggers that my sponsors taught me are switching seats in the Titanic. I'm working on myself of having a great week, a great month, raising money from our foundation, helping so many people. And understanding that Darren can be alone. Darren can sit with his dog, Ronnie, and reflect on the week or the month and be okay sitting with the sense of self. I got, I got one more thing for you. Um, you. You talk about how you talk like somebody who is in the middle of the boat recovery-wise. You make a lot of meetings, and you make a lot of meetings on the road, as you've talked about. You, I've heard you say before, nobody can match your 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 ability to hit meetings on the road. Nobody, and I don't even say it from an ego place. There's <laughs> nobody that can say they've hit more meetings around the world than Darren Prince. Period. And I'll I'll go on record with that. I mean, 
I was with my girlfriend, Nicolette, when we were together in Dubai. She was doing a photo shoot on the beach. You know what I did? I found a meeting in Dubai. I walked into the room in January with tears in my eyes. And half the room was in tears when I raised my hand. I said, I'm from the United States. I've been to meetings in Maui, Honolulu, London, England, Brisbane, Australia, Sydney, Australia, on the beach in Fiji on New Year's, um, Monaco, Nice, when Magic and Cookie flew everybody out. Yeah. For their twenty fifth, he had a twenty fifth surprise wedding anniversary. I flew in too early, bro, so I can hit two meetings in Nice. <laughs> I looked it up online. I mean, it is a feeling, and, and there's a lot of other countries. I mean, Tokyo. Uh, I heard you mention Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, Tokyo. I was out there with Rodman for a promotion, and I literally the last day he had to do a, an event. My my guy Steve Simon, that's like my brother. We go back since I was ten. He's the VP of my agency. I literally went to downtown Tokyo to hit a meeting wasn't the best one. It became about a woman that was upset that somebody broke her anonymity on Facebook. So it was an hour long meeting, but I still made it. And there was 50 people in that room. Yeah. And it is a feeling that is indescribable. I, I mean, and, and I'm believing I'm missing a lot of other countries and locations that I went to. That was just like a short summary of it. And, and in America, forget about it. I mean, every time I go see Hulk and Rick down in Tampa and Clearwater Beach, I go to the Serenity Club. Uh, which is on Turner Street, if anybody's listening that's in recovery. It's iconic. It's a clubhouse that's been there for 50 years. In Vegas, there's one on Ship Drive. I think it recently closed. It's right next to Mayweather's Boxing Gym. But there's an app that I live by when I'm on the road, especially because I don't want to lose that connection, man. I want to always stay dialed in. I never want what the fellowship gave, gave me to keep me from coming to the fellowship because – this fellowship and this program, and you got to work them both. And it's literally something my sponsor instilled in me very early on that you have to put the same effort in your recovery with your travel that you did into using and getting high, because that's the most important thing to keep you on that spiritual beam. Because life is going to come at you. And I look like so many spiritual nuggets. I now try to say what I mean, mean what I say, and not say it mean to become a better person. I'm not always perfect at it but I'm a lot better than I've ever been. Like the 11 steps as I try to understand people instead of me being understood in the heat of an argument, I'd rather not engage and feel all right than right. Yeah. Um, these things are so key to our emotional recovery and we don't have an option anymore. If we take ourselves out of ourselves, that's on us. And then we have to live with that emotional hangover that can last days. It's not worth it. You're worth it, dude. I, I can't imagine, you know, like, how many people you're helping. And I thank you so much for spending time with, with me today and with all the people that are listening. Official is, is official DarrenPrince.com. Is that a great place to go? OfficialDarrenPrince.com. They can find me on Instagram at agent underscore DP. Uh, for anybody that can't afford it, we'll have to publish to ship out copies of my book, Aiming High. Uh, AimingHighFoundation.org. I, I don't care if somebody's got 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100% of the proceeds goes to get people in treatment. We've worked with the Novak House. We've worked with Banning Treatment. Novak, yeah, he's, Oak, he's awesome. O yeah. o Oaks Recovery. We've scholarship so many people, and it's the greatest joy in my life. And, and, and lastly, you know, I know people do want to know about the business side of things, Prince Marketing Group. It's not while I'm here, sure. but I know you might get some messages on it and tell people how they can find us, so I say it for that reason. But really, I'm here to you know, share my, my story from the hell uh, of addiction and coming out of the other side and we're celebrating 15 years because if we can get just one person 
during this hour of talk that we had. Uh, hey, you and I did God's work. That's what it's about. And even the ones that are at the top without struggling from, uh, you know, mental health and substance abuse. You know, you know the way your character defects are affecting your life. You know the ones that are nearest and dearest to you. You know, some of the most successful people, they became that successful because they're running from something. Yeah. And get the quality of life that you deserve and get those breakthroughs because, like I told John, I'm like one of the best manifestation energy blo uh, blockage coach on the planet. The guy's so gifted. And uh, he tells me stories about all the time without mentioning names about some of these high-level men and women that, that, that have had these blockages their whole life. I mean, you could remove all that. Like I said, even if you don't suffer from substance abuse, you'll manifest to a way that you've never even dreamed of. Darren, my brother was a, he was a therapist out. He lived in Hermosa. He just died from, from fucking skin cancer over the summer. Um, but he was out there. He's Roxbury group guy, sober guy. And he was, like I said, a therapist. And I would ask him because I was insecure and I'm an addict in recovery. I'll be like, what's the, what do you hear the most from these ballers that come into your office, right? Air quotes ballers and sit down to you and talk to you about themselves. He's like, more often than not, they think they're a fraud. These, these people that yep. are, and you're around them all the time, right? I mean, just uber successful people, they still need the help emotionally that they probably haven't sought their whole lives. And when, and, when I raised my hand, bro, like said, you can watch so many podcasts and keynotes of mine. When I raised my hand in that church raised my eight o'clock at night on July 2nd, First thing I thought to myself, this big time super agent is a fraud. He couldn't stay sober more than a few hours at a time. Yeah. That's when I knew God went into my heart and into my soul and started working on changing my perspective and perception because I surrendered with every fiber of my soul. The gig was up and I was ready to walk away from anything to have a single day of freedom. And I put in the work, you know, for the past 15 years and I still do every single day because I never want to get complacent. Complacency has never set in. And, and I love when I have relapse dreams. I don't call them nightmares. I, I want to have those as often as possible <clears throat> because that's a reminder. You know, I might be recovered in the past tense, but yeah, once in a while, I've got to let me know. You know, I don't want to get complacent. I don't want to get that swagger back. I know tonight I'm going to bed sober, but, you know, that doesn't mean tomorrow... I could be off the beam emotionally. And, you know, if I'm off the beam emotionally, I'm that much closer to a potential relapse. Thank you so much, Darren. I, I can't thank you enough, really. Thank you for your time. I'll send this over um, to Carla when it's, when it's up. It'll probably be up tomorrow or the next day. But I, I really can't thank you enough. I've heard such awesome things about you and read such awesome things about you, but to experience it firsthand is next level. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me, my brother. I appreciate it. Let's get to Let's get to one person or more, and if, if anybody's in need of treatment, uh, they can DM me privately on Instagram or Facebook, tell me about their struggles. I do anything I can in my power to get people, uh, you know, the life that they deserve. Let's turn that dark into, you know, a bright light like it happened for me. It's happened for so many. Even if you don't have the resources, hopefully my foundation can assist. All you need is the willingness to make a change. Thank you so much for carrying the message and for spending the time, man. I appreciate it, Darren. Thank you. We'll be in touch. All right. Take Thanks, care, bud. You got it. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. 
This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.